This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Remember, always be closing. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Peter Schwartz. Peter is a futurist and the senior vice president for planning at Salesforce. Peter is also the founder of the Global Business Network and the author of multiple books, including The Art of the Long View. On this episode, Peter discusses how technologies of the future, like AI and augmented reality, will affect marketers. He also talks about storytelling and what it was like creating the world of the future with Steven Spielberg for the movie Minority Report. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. I am joined by a special guest. We are sitting high above San Francisco, dare I say, in the cloud. Peter, how's oh, it going? today is a cloudless day. It's absolutely gorgeous. I know, right? <laughs> Who knew? It's like the most gorgeous day of, this, of the, uh, I was going to say of the summer, of the, uh, of the San Francisco winter here, which somehow ended up to be sunny. We have a ton to talk about with you. First, I'd like to get into, how do you view yourself? Do you see yourself as a technologist? Do you see yourself as a futurist? Do you see yourself as, uh, as a salesperson, as a marketer, as a writer? Um, how do you kind of view this awesome career that you've had? Well, the answer is basically yes. <laughs> uh, all of the above. I mean, so most people would call me a futurist. Uh, and I'm comfortable with that. I, I've spent the last 45 years thinking about the future and helping organizations think about the future. But as a result, you know, I think a lot about technology and society and all of those kinds of questions. And, you know, the, the I, I don't think of myself as a marketer or a salesperson, but the truth is I sell and I market. And so I market ideas. I get people, I sell the people ideas to, to act on. I think I'm all of the above. And I think specifically, you know, as we as we look at our marketing trends audience and marketing leaders, I think it's so important to emphasize storytelling, how you tell stories, how you look at the future, how your company and your products shape that future. You've had a ton of experience storytelling, both with your writing and working on films like Minority Report uh, and others. What would you say from a storytelling perspective? What were some of the insights that you've gleaned that you've seen from the best futuristic storytelling? You know, I, I think storytelling is a very important idea. In my book, The Art of the Long View, begins uh, with a chapter called The Storytelling Animal. And the reason is very simple, and that is that we tell ourselves stories all day long. Stories give meaning to facts, right? They, they, they create the context for our lives constantly. So when we hear something new, we're always integrating it into the story of our lives in one way or another. So human beings just kind of constantly tell themselves stories. So, you know, I, I see stories as central to our life, right? I mean, it's, it's there with us all the time. We are telling stories, we're listening to stories, we're creating stories and so on. So it's a very important thing. 
Having said that, stories have structure. Yeah. All right. Stories have beginning, middle, and end. They have characters. They have emotion. They have flow. They have resolutions, uh, happy endings, unhappy endings. And uh, that's true of movie scripts. That's true of novels. That's true of short stories. And it's true of marketing messages. Yeah. You know, you, you've seen uh, some of the best marketing messages have either explicit or implicit stories embedded within them. And if they evoke that kind of story-like response that a person says, oh, I got it, you know, then you've been very successful. You know, one of, in, in one of the early episodes of Marketing Trends, we talked about, we did that, we looked at 40 lessons from 40 years of Apple ads. And it's interesting to see how, you know, obviously we know Apple's a phenomenal marketing company, right. but, and Steve Jobs is obviously exceptional at this, but how they always put the person, they push the boundary of what the future was and put their, their consumer there. They put the person who's going to buy their product in that future. How did, how have you kind of like looked at that as looking at some of these future, like, like minority report, like, you know, you're, you're looking at this movie and you're thinking like, wow. And, and then a bunch of these technologies come true. Right. So I like, how did you kind of look at this story when you were working on that project and say, how do we structure a world that we might actually be living in? Sure. Well, look, before I get to Minority Report, it is worth mentioning, you mentioned Apple, right? And yeah. of course, uh, one of the most famous ads of all time is the Apple ad they showed at the 1984 Super Bowl yep. to introduce the Macintosh that was only shown once. Yep. Of course, you can find it on YouTube, but it was the famous ad of the Big Brother, yep. right? And implicit in that was a big story of what Apple was all about. And you did not have to think real hard to get the story. It was almost wordless. And yet everybody who saw that knew what it meant, right? And it was very powerful. Apple then also put out a video, which is also available online, called the Knowledge Navigator, which uh, laid out a vision of what technology would be like when you had a personal device in your hands that communicated with all the world's information, with other people that could simulate things and use all that data and create remarkable opportunities, say, for a college professor, right, who was the, the character in this little video. 15 minutes long. That video shaped more of the IT industry than any other piece of content in the last 30 years, right? That's what everybody was working toward. And the iPad was the realization yeah. of that vision, along with the World Wide Web, along with Wikipedia and so on, all enabled that to come to fruition. And I can tell you that you know, whether it was Jimmy Wales starting Wikipedia or anybody else, they saw the Knowledge Navigator and it had a very powerful impact. Yeah. Right? So, and it, it wasn't a six, successful product. No, right? no, was, they, they weren't ready. It couldn't produce it. Yeah. The, the first cut at it was the Newton, right? Yeah, that's right. Totally yeah, yeah, Newton, yeah. Right. The technology wasn't ripe yet. But that vision shaped so many people in the valley, right? It had, a, including me. Yeah. All right. Let me be clear. So, I say that because the Knowledge Navigator was in many ways my inspiration, right? I said, all right, when we started working on Minority Report, I said that's what we would like to be able to do is to create visions that would actually move people. We wanted, and Spielberg and I talked about it, we wanted to change the vernacular of the future. At that point, the, the, the reference frame was Blade Runner, right? That's what everybody thought about when they yeah, thought about of the course. future. It was yeah, Blade yeah. Runner until Minority Report came along. And when we actually wrote the, the, the content for the movie, the idea was to change that language, that people would you would say a decade from when the movie came out, that's just like in Minority Report. Yeah. 
And that's exactly what happened. It is exactly what happened. Right. And it's and it's really, I mean, and you look at every single thing from like the eye recognition and the guy walking in, I look that famous where he walks in and I forget his name. It's like Mr. Yakamoto. Right. And it's it has the, yeah, because he has the other person's eyes. Exactly. Right. And like this sort of thing that like, I mean, I think collectively the world was just like, oh my goodness, this is something that can happen like people were so like they couldn't kind of believe it as someone who was working on that what were you working towards like what were the things that you believed that were true that maybe other people around you didn't well look the way it actually worked was Stephen came to me and said we have a short story minority report by philip k dick uh that has no world in it yep. it was just an eight-page story yep. that had no content yep. of what in the background he says but i want to make a realistic vision of the future so help me create a realistic vision. So I brought a team of 15 people together for about four days at Shutter's Hotel in L.A. And uh, we had the script writers. We had Stephen. We had the producers. Uh, we had artists. And we sat there for four days. And Stephen would say, well, what's advertising like? Yeah. What's a school like? What happens when uh, Tom Cruise walks into his apartment? You know, what's a computer interface like? And I can remember Jaron Lanier, who was part of that group, Jaron saying, oh, it's going to be gesture control. And he got up and he showed how it might work. And sure enough, that's what ended up on screen. And so we systematically went through every feature of life. Uh, Stephen says, I don't want any traffic jams in my future. I said, well, so that means the, the cars have to go vertical. And so you saw cars going up the side of buildings, right? And when Tom Cruise arrives in an apartment, his car integrates with his apartment. It's another room in his apartment. Yep. Now, the, where that idea came from was Peter Gabriel, the rock star. Well, there are many of those ideas that came from a remarkable community of people that I brought together to actually create that vision of the future. It was very, very specific. And it was, you know, we were constrained by the laws of physics, up to a point. Right. That is, you know, we would tell Stephen, well, this can be done. And you know, Stephen said, well, I, I want jetpacks on my comps. And we'd say, well, Stephen, actually, you can't. Uh, the physics doesn't work. And he said, my cops will have jetpacks. And <laughs> if you're Steven Spielberg, your cops get jetpacks. Uh, right. Even though it's not realistic. So aside from the jetpacks, virtually everything else in the movie was quite realistic. And, we, you know, uh, it was required expertise in each of these fields, kind of systematic exploration and kind of creative collaboration using a process similar to what I do, which calls scenario planning. We actually yeah. thought through the scenarios of how this might all play out. And then I wrote it up in, in what became the Bible. And then that was used by the script writers, the uh, art director, the special effects people to create that world. It's so fascinating to see the different people that collaborated on the future of technology. And I think it's so cool to see how many people are inspired by that stuff. You've seen, you know, with with like Magic Leap, that the founders of Magic Leap, they were um, the 3D chess on the Millennium Falcon right. and things like that. Like these things that shape the future of technology when you realize like you see it for the first time and we create something that just doesn't exist yet. I mean... And, you know, obviously there's all sorts of people who do that. But when you when you were making like the jetpacks, for example, when you were making these things, did you think these will be ready by the time the movie is is, uh, you know, 20 year what the, the 20 year anniversary? Did you say it's going to happen sometime in the next hundred years or did you say it doesn't matter because I know it's going to be there someday? Uh, well, in the case of the jetpacks, we said probably not going to happen. Never but, yeah, happen but, right? Well, never is too strong a word, but not not in the time frame of the movie. But aside from that, everything else we thought actually was quite plausible in that time frame. And we thought it through pretty carefully in that respect. But look, another one of my films was a film I worked on with also with Stephen called Deep Impact. Yeah. Yes. Okay, there a comet is going to hit the Earth, and we send a spaceship out to blow up the comet, right? Uh, flown by uh, uh, 
No, it doesn't matter. Anyway, but the point is that the consequence of that film is that there's now a global program to detect incoming asteroids and comets and actually deal with it. Yeah. Our intention was to awaken the world to a plausible threat, and that has actually now happened. Both NASA and the United Nations have a collaborative program that is the direct result of that movie. And that was our intention, was a warning that actually we were really threatened by a major catastrophe from space. And that's real. Could happen any time. And so... You know, these kinds of films actually can have. And there's another example that uh, shocked me, to be honest, which I only found out in hindsight. Uh, when we did Deep Impact, that was our, one of our goals. But another film I helped write was called War Games. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Great. Okay. So, you know, in War Games, uh, Matthew Broderick nearly starts World War III. And the, the tale was that a computer takes over control of the, uh, the missiles, right? Well, as it turns out, which we didn't know until many years later, uh, Ronald Reagan arranged a, a showing of it at the White House, mainly because one of my co-authors, Larry Lasker's mother, was a good friend of Ronnie. Oh, my uh, goodness. And she, uh, from, from the, from the, from the Hollywood days. The Hollywood yeah. days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mary called up Ronnie and said, Ronnie, my son Larry made a movie. You ought to see it at the White House. <laughs> I'm sure it was a direct quote. And so he did. And they showed it. Well, he turned to one of his military advisors who was there, this is all coming out of a book just about a year ago, said, you know, is that possible? Can that happen? And the, the military advisor said, well, you don't know, Mr. President, it's much worse than that. <laughs> and he said, no. And so, so they commissioned a study and actually changed how we control the nuclear weapons and missiles of the United States. So these films actually do have an impact. Uh, that one we didn't know. That wasn't our goal. It was pure entertainment. But it turned out it actually had an impact that we hadn't anticipated. So I I love all these films. And I especially love, I love, I mean, we talk about Minority Report all the time. We'll, we'll get into, I have a few other questions on that. But another one that you did was Sneakers. Correct. And, I, and one of the great, I just watched this recently uh, with my girlfriend. And... The reveal of, sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't, stop listening, come back, go watch Sneakers. When they say, when they he goes, well, he gets kidnapped, the main character gets kidnapped, and he's getting carried across a bridge that's in the Bay Area, that's somewhere. And they're saying, how, how long were you on it? How long? And, and then, the, well, there were bumps every few, like every, every, every couple seconds there was a bump, and they're like, that's the San Mateo Bridge. <laughs> and I was like, I have been across, I work in Palo Alto, I've been across that bridge so many times, I felt those bumps. I was like, you would absolutely know that is such a realistic thing. I don't know if you came up with that, but it was a great, it was a great one. Back to the Minority Report yeah. stuff. And I think that it's so important to touch on the future of storytelling and how marketers can have an impact on this and how there is a huge responsibility from like a media and creation storytelling standpoint to shape the future. And it's it's a big responsibility. Um, and I think a lot of the best marketers feel that way. One of the things that Minority Report and Stephen was famous for is product placement. Maybe one of the best of all time. I, I'd say the best of all time at product placement. Minority Report, full of product placement. People forget, E.T. drinks a Coors. He drinks a Coors Yellow Belly. They, Coors did an ad campaign after E.T. about, you know, make sure you phone home, get a ride, don't drink a jive sort of stuff, which is brilliant. This helps pay for some of these movies that had a lot of expenses, especially technologically. 
Did you talk to Stephen about those things? How did yeah. he view those things? How did you view putting these products into the future? Yeah, in, in, I mean, there are several scenes in the film which have uh, a number of uh, products. The most famous is, is Tom Cruise walking into the shopping mall, and you have Amex, you yep. have Guinness, you have Lexus. Uh, Lexus also bought the car yes. that he escapes in and so on. I had friends at one of the other car makers. I won't name it. <laughs> I tried to convince them, hey, this is going to be a big opportunity. Opportunity. They're going to show this amazing new car in Minority Report. Wouldn't you like to do it? I failed to get them to buy it. Toyota, Lexus bought it. But in fact, I, I think there are huge opportunities like that in the sense of being able to share your vision in things like a film. The earliest version of that was 2001, right? When they're on their way to the moon on a Pan Am spaceship, yeah. when there used to be a Pan Am. They're staying on the Howard Johnson's space station, right? And they're using the AT&T video phone. You know, that goes all the way back to uh, 2001. I think that was the first sci-fi film with real product placement in it. I'm, I'm not sure there was anything earlier than that. But there was a reason. I mean, AT&T actually had that vision of video communication and wanted to promote that idea. And so these are actual remarkable opportunities to share a vision in the future. Uh, I think companies ought to take advantage of it when they have that chance. Well, and, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know if you were involved in the, how much in the negotiations mm -hmm. of those things like that, but nothing to do with that. But if you look at the long tail, people talk about long tail marketing. If you believe your company, your, your company's going to be around, your products are going to be around for the next 20 years. How many people have watched Minority Report? About 2 billion. Yeah. Oh, it's just 2 billion people. So how many times, how many impressions do you have? Oh, you know, you got 2 billion plus, oh, all of the other ones that people have listened to. And so what does Lexus do? Black Panther comes out. What is the car in Black Panther? It's a Lexus. And Black Panther smashes every box office record. And by right. the way, how many people do you think are going to see Black Panther over the next 20 years? Probably about 10 billion. Yeah, yeah. So, virtually everybody on the planet. Essentially everybody on the planet. So if you look at that type of long-term thinking as a marketer, and how you can align with these things, it takes a lot of complex coordination to figure it all out. But if you are trying to build the future, that's, that's really important. You know, you've studied AI, you've studied some of these futuristic concepts. Mm -hmm. What do you think people should be excited about? Where do you think their focus should be if they want to be, you know, tell stories about the near term future that their company is a part of? What are some of those? What are some of those opportunities? Well, I think there's a very big one. Look, there's a lot of fear out there about AI. Because there's a misimpression about what's the reality. Uh, there's this kind of sense of runaway robots and, or, and the Terminator, etc. That's all bad science fiction. I know I write the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> the point is simply that an important thing to do is to take the fear out. Yeah. Right. There was a great, uh, wonderful film about AI not long ago uh, called A Robot and Frank mm -hmm. about a, an aging thief who's getting slightly demented. His family buys him a, a robot to keep him company. And the robot does it. He finally says, OK, I, you know, I accept the robot. And then he, he kind of corrupts him and they carry out one last heist together, the robot and the aging thief. This is a door. I, I want to watch this. Oh, it's this a delightful great. film. But my point is that in the story, one gets a very different feeling for what AI might mean and what it might be like. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity to educate yeah. around AI. That's that's number one. And I think a necessary one. But the other is that the essential message of AI in the world that we're moving into is that it's about taking the friction out of life and the complexity out of life. Life has gotten to be high friction, high complexity. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, I was talking not long ago to the CEO of Marriott. 
who was visiting us here at Salesforce, Arnie Swenson. I gave him an interesting example that travel has gotten to be a real hassle, mm-hmm. right? People do not like traveling anymore. They like getting being there, but getting there, not so much. I totally, this, I mean, it's my miserable. girlfriable is miserable, miserable at the miserable, table for right? a flight. You, yeah. you want to get past yeah. it. You want to be at the other end. You know, if we had the teleporter from Star Trek, we'd use it, right? Yep. But unfortunately, we don't. Uh, we have to actually get to the airport. We have to go through security. We have to get on the plane. We have to eat lousy food. We have to pick up our bags, wait for the taxi, uh, go through traffic, and find we get to the Marriott, right? Oh, God. Well, I, I told him the story of my wife's uh, Italian class was uh, going to Italy for a Italian course that they take in the course of the summer, little immersion class. And there was an 82-year-old woman who was part of the class. And she said to my wife, you know, I just don't think I can go. I can't handle the complexity and, and hassle of it anymore, just beyond me. And I said, Arnie, what that person needs is a digital travel assistant that can help them manage the complexity. A smart, you know, what a CEO has, what a rock star has, they don't have to deal with any of that. You know, they have people who deal with that. Well, most of us can't have that people, but they can have a digital assistant that can help manage the complexity, get them to the right place at the right time, handle security, handle their boarding pass, handle the reservations, get them checked in, all that stuff. What Marriott needs to provide is a digital travel assistant that takes the complexity and hassle and friction out of life. And I think that's the vision that we want to share, is that the role of AI is to remove the complexity and friction from life, to take on all those tasks that only the rich get taken care of by their digital, their human assistants uh, that everyone has. Look, I, I have four people who work for me who take all the friction out of my life. Before I walked in this room, my assistant, Amanda, gave me the question list. She made sure I was in the right place. After I arrived here, she brought my coffee here. I'm sitting here completely well-supported. Why? I'm a senior executive in a large company, and I have that kind of support. But 99.99% of people don't. And that's what marketers need to communicate, that what AI is about, whether it's in the retail experience or financial services or healthcare travel or automobiles or education or being at work, that the role of AI today is to take the friction and complexity out of life. It's such a salient point because that's the job of every marketer is to paint the future of them with the product, not in the picture, but as the fuel for how you get that thing that you want. Yeah. And you know, Look, I had a great example recently that totally surprised me. It was a moment of great delight, right? I have a new car, I have a BMW i8, and I was driving it, and I wanted to put in an address into my GPS. And I'm driving along, and I, I probably shouldn't have been doing this, and I'm kind of punching it, and, and I screw it up, right? I said, oh, I go, go back and try to get it, and I screw it up. And up comes a voice. It says, sounds like you're, looks like you're having trouble. Would you like to do this with voice? And I said, wow, yes. And I said, oh, yeah, I want to go to this address. No problem. Boop. My GPS is programmed. Now, that was exactly what you would like to have happen. It was, I fell in love with my car company at that moment, right? They'd anticipated my need. They created a capability. They didn't even bother to tell me about yep. it. It was a moment of surprise and delight, right? It just appeared on the dashboard of my car. Boop. Here's this digital assistant that can help you get where you want to go. Took the friction out of my life took the complexity and actually a little bit of danger, a little risk, right? I no longer had to fool around with buttons and keyboards and so on while I was driving. You know, we talk a lot about what robots are really good at is like predictive. They can look at lots of stuff. They can spot abnormalities. They can do these things that humans are just really, really bad at. 
And I had the same experience the other day with Waze where like, I don't ever update Waze. I'm sure Waze updates on my phone, but I don't ever update it. I got in my car, I clicked the Waze thing and it just says navigating to work. It just knew that I leave my, my house at a certain time and that that's where I'm going. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's, hey, I am going there. And you're like, that was nice. And whether it's you starting to type an email saying like, hey, thanks so much for you know coming on our show today. And then the next two sentences are already typed for you and you can just press tab. And it's like, hey, that's exactly what I was going to write. Um, like those sort of things. I love it. It's brilliant. Are there other like use cases of, of AI that you see that kind of take that and take that next step? Oh, sure. Many, 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 many. I mean, among the most important are things like healthcare. Yeah. Okay. So everything from, for example, there's a great startup called Bainbridge Health mm-hmm. that makes sure that the right drug gets to the right person at the right time. Right? And it's a kind of mindless bureaucrat that asks, you know, is this the right number? Oh, is this goodness. the right number? Did you check? Did you? Right? And make sure, because 7,000 people a year die in hospitals from getting the wrong drug. Crazy. Right? Banal task. Unfortunately, the complexity of flow now has gotten to be complex enough that there's a number of opportunities for error in that flow of going from the pharmacy to the individual. Takes the likelihood of error out of that. It's a perfect example. There are many such examples where essentially human beings are supplemented and their work is enabled, I think, by uh, an AI that is engaging, taking out certain parts of the task so they can relate to it. So you take the nurse, what she should be focused on is the human interaction with the patient, as opposed to checking all the time at every stage, making sure I've got the right drug and so on. Now this AI basically alerts her, wait a minute, you got the wrong drug here. Or you've got the wrong dosage or no, not yet. It's for three o'clock, not one o'clock and so on. And this is one of those things to take that analogy a step further is that for all this time, we've talked about how doctors have horrible penmanship, right? So one solution would be like buy every doctor in the country better writing classes so that they can learn to write better. Or the other thing is after this, they, they click it on their machine, their tablet, their iPad, their whatever it is. And then let's say, you know, they screwed it up. They pushed the wrong button. And instead of it just sending that medicine, you have this AI that spits back and says, wait, this doesn't make sense that this person would be getting this medicine exactly, at this time. Exactly. That's precisely right. And, and, and that's the sort of stuff that's so exciting from a marketing standpoint, I think, because you can tell that story, that journey that is 7,000 lives saved because of AI. And I think a lot of times like we have said, oh, this, it just makes our lives easier. Well, it's like people don't necessarily know what that feels like because they can't imagine what it would be like. You know, if someone saying that, hey, your emails are going to be being written for you, you'd be like, yeah, I don't really need that. But once you feel it happening, once the car tells you, hey, this is where you're going, you're like, wow, this is great. And look, you know, you think about it in marketing. What, what is marketing about, right? It's creating awareness of a product or service out there and creating demand, Right. Okay, so what does that mean? It means you have to understand the product or service that you're dealing with, but you also need to understand the people you're trying to reach, right? And so there, again, AI, in matching the individual with the message is a very, very, very powerful tool, right? That uh, when you think about all the different variables that might structure an understanding of an individual, they're very large. And as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, one of the things that AI is very good at is pattern recognition of complex data sets. And there isn't a much more complex data set than trying to understand the full range of human behavior. Yeah. Right. So essentially a marketing assistant 
that works with a marketer and says, all right, you're trying to reach a particular demographic or even a particular individual. Here are the salient characteristics that you want to touch. They're particularly concerned about security. They're particularly concerned about cost and timeliness. They don't really care about how it looks. They don't care about, you know, et cetera. So what you need to be thinking about in your message are those salient attributes of the product or service that focus on that particular individual's concerns. And constructing on the fly messages and for marketers that actually speak to the real concerns of the person you're trying to reach and with the real attributes of the product or service you're trying to sell is a very difficult task to do at scale, Yeah. right? Well, that's where an AI could come in is to do that at scale in a way that no human team could ever possibly do. And that's the thing that I think people are worried about AI taking jobs. They're worried about these things that, um, and the truth of the matter is, of course, it's going to take take certain types of jobs. But, you know, there's a, a story that, that we tell on, um, on one of our shows, The Future Cities, about this. There was this new technology in New York City that was spreading like wildfire, but it was creating literally some fires and it was kind of dangerous and the politicians were worried about it. And ultimately, they were so insistent that they didn't want to lose the jobs of the lamplighters that they didn't want to have electricity. Right. Right. So like these type of things happen. And I think we're, we're scared of like the loss because it's a very real thing that people would lose their jobs. The other side of this is that there's a ton of net new job creation. What are some of those type of things that are coming? Well, I think that you've asked exactly the right question. Sure, there will be some job losses, but history tells us overwhelmingly that we create more jobs than we destroy. The the question we have to ask is, will the people be the right people for those jobs? That's that's the harder challenge, to be honest. But let me give you a concrete example of a job of the future that people aren't seeing. Truck drivers, right? Everybody says the truck driver is going to go away because we're going to have autonomous vehicles. Not so. First of all, we need more truck driving because we are delivering more stuff to more places all the time, right? You know, right now, about five delivery trucks go by my house every hour, but half of them stop at my house. My wife's a professional retail researcher. And, you know, we got the, all of the trucks stopping to visit us. Though I will say, just as an aside, we were uh, walking in the neighborhood the other day and a little black Toyota was running around making deliveries in the neighborhood. I said, what, what's this guy doing? Couldn't figure out what it was. He was delivering pot. <laughs> yeah. I, we live in California, right? Hey, there you Home go. delivery. But the, the, the truck driver of the future, you can already see, and it is outside of Las Vegas. There's a building owned by the U.S. Air Force where pilots go to work every day, but they don't get in cockpits. They yep. sit in front of a computer screen and fly a drone halfway around the world. And that's the truck driver of tomorrow. They will not go get in the cab of a truck. They'll pick up their first truck remotely drive it through the city streets where you can't drive it autonomously, put it on the freeway and head it off to Los Angeles where it will go autonomously. Picks up his second truck, drives through the city streets of San Francisco, puts it on the freeway, it's headed toward Portland. Picks up the third truck, drives through the city street, puts it on the freeway, it's headed toward Reno and so on until he's got five or 10 trucks on the road. Picks up the first one now remotely, drives through the streets and parks it where it's meant to go. So what has happened now is that you actually have an augmented truck driver. Part of the task is carried out autonomously. Part of it is driven by a human being. Oh, by the way, the human being now no longer dies in truck crashes, doesn't suck fumes all day, gets to spend the night with their kids or their husband or their wife, uh, are not on the road all the time. And it's a very – now, the skill set is Grand Theft Auto, right? I was just going to say that. I mean, that's the skill set. Having said that, 
my point is it takes imagination to see that. And this is not science fiction. Starsky Robotics in Las Vegas is already building the trucks I'm talking about. They're already on the road. Billiton Mining is doing it in the mining industry. That's what I mean by imagination, right? You need to see these kind of jobs of the future. Think about what the store clerk of the future will be like. You already get a hint of it at Target today. If you walk into some Targets, what you will see is that most of the checkout counters are empty, right? Because you do it yourself, right? But it also, if you've come in with the app and you've kind of identified on the app what you're looking for, the store knows you've come in, right? Now what happens is that a human being comes to you and says, oh, Mr. Schwartz, I see you need some new lawn furniture and some barbecue tools. Let me show you what we've got. And it says, you know, this particular kind works well for this, this works well for that. So basically, the human interaction, the knowledge of the product, the capacity to motivate and engage, everything that a human being does very well, as opposed to sitting, standing at a counter checking out the goods at the end of the day, which any machine can do, right? But the machine isn't going to be able to read your feelings, understand what you're up to, your desires, and actually work with you. And then the human being isn't standing there at the checkout counter all day just punching in numbers. They're actually interacting with other people around it, questions that are meaningful to them in context. So it changed the job. The skill set is very different than being a checkout clerk. It's a higher level job, a better job, and delivers higher quality engagement and takes the routine friction task out of the loop. You know, it's it reminds me of the the Clayton Christensen how you know things have a job to do, and I think right, you know, exactly. one of those. You know, I, I recently. Um, uh, I recently was cooking fish and I did not have a fish spatula, right? But the thing that I needed was not necessarily a fish spatula, it ended up being that, but it was like, I needed something that was extremely thin that I could flip over the fish without like ruining the skin of the, of the, I didn't, I literally didn't know what a fish spatula was like three years ago. And so I, my girlfriend is a chef. And so she was like, oh, we don't have a fish spatula. I'm like, that's why I keep ruining all these stupid fish. But if I had gone into a store and said, hey, I have this problem. I keep ruining the fish that I'm flipping over. Then that person could have engaged with me and said, oh, you know what you actually need? There's this thing called a fish spatula. It's way thinner. Though. You'll be good. Well, actually, where we're going is that the next step is that your stove will know that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm serious. And, and you, you, you're standing at your stove trying to make your fish, frying your fish. And say, and, hey, this is not working. My, my, my spatula isn't right. And your stove speaks up. Well, what you need is a fish spatula. And I've just ordered one for you from Amazon. It'll be here in 47 minutes. You know. But before the even before the fish is even cold. Yeah. <laughs> so, Which, but, but what I said is, by the way, quite realistic. I, I, I mean that quite seriously. If you go visit the uh, appliance makers, as I have, what you realize is that the interface of the future is voice. And it's in the cloud. And what they're doing is providing real-time advice to people in the kitchen, in the refrigerator, their stove, their washing machine. You know, you know. I don't know about you. You're a male. I'm a male. I don't know about colors and darks and lights and what you could put you in do, the washing. You have a phenomenal sense of style. Though. Yeah, I have I a wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a wife. That's what I have. Not a sense of style. Uh, but my, my point is that uh, my washing machine will know. And, and I, I, if I put in a brand new black T-shirt with my beautiful uh, yellow polo, my washing machine was like, hey, Schwartz, you're an idiot. Don't put that black T-shirt in there, you know, because it'll detect it and know. That's where the interfaces are going. So what, this was one of the 
you know, to, to, to bring this back to Minority Report for a second, some of the things that were happening in that movie that are like really happening now, mm-hmm. I think the voice and the and the movement, sorry, what's it's, what's the, the movement? The uh, gesture control? Yeah, gesture control. Thank you. These two things, one is essentially, you know, voice activation. The other one is like scented augmented reality right. of some exactly. kind. These things are, I think a lot of times we look at things how they currently are, you know, right this second and, you know, like, hey, you know, Siri doesn't really understand me that great or whatever it is. I know that there's so many Salesforce products that are going to have all of this stuff and Einstein, all this really cool stuff that is voice controlled. And, you know, the salespeople out there doing backflips that they can leave a meeting and just that entire all of the notes from that. I mean, it's already happening. It's already a feature that it's all taken for them. But these two, the blending of voice and augmented reality, the blending of being able to, you know, take something from your pocket and throw the ball of light and say, this is this is how it looks. How quickly do you think is the the speed to innovation on these, like the exponential growth of these type of products? Because it seems like voice gets 10 times better every year, not just, you know, one X better. Yeah, I think voice is going to become ubiquitous. It, it's the natural human interface. It's what we do all the time, right? We yeah. talk to each other. We just can't talk to our machines. Yeah. And that's what's about to change. Right. And that's going to be and our machines will talk back. Right. So this is starting right now. Right. And one way to think about this is I like the the analogy of the BlackBerry to the smartphone. Right. We can all remember what a BlackBerry was like. It was pretty funky. Mm -hmm. Right. But it gave you a hint of what was going to happen when the iPhone came along. Right. Once the iPhone came along. Ah, this is what the BlackBerry wanted to be. Right. Well, Alexa, Siri, Google Home, this is what the digital assistant of tomorrow wants to be. But it isn't quite there yet. Technology isn't there. The interfaces aren't there. But it's close. It's very close. So this is not 10 years. This is gradually over time, every new technology, every generation car, every generation appliance, every generation computer, every uh, hotel room will begin to get embedded bits of voice, right? And that's what we'll see. So voice, I think... Is going to happen very, very, very fast and ubiquitously uh, everywhere. So I think that is real. Augmented reality is a bit slower, uh, only because it's harder. It's more difficult. There are particular situations where it works very well. Uh, so, for example, in uh, Singapore, they're just celebrating their 200th anniversary when uh, Singapore as a colony was founded back in 1819. Along the river uh, in Singapore, what they've done is they have recreated uh, the history of Singapore along the Singapore River. And you can walk along the river and with your smartphone or your iPad, you can pull it up and pull up an app and see what that place looked like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And you can see the history of that place in augmented reality overlaid on today's reality, right? Now, this this is actually already difficult, right? It was expensive and hassle to do that. And that's just beginning. Magic Leap is the, the, the kind of ultimate augmented reality company. And they haven't quite made it yet because the technology turns out to be still challenging. Yep. So I, I think it will come. There'll be many applications. There's a brilliant article about to appear in Wired magazine by Kevin Kelly mm-hmm. uh, called Mirror World. And basically describing that world where essentially you can see many versions of reality in the reality that you are in. Mm-hmm. And you can wind it back and forward in time and so on and see what that place and time and that experience was like. Uh, so I, I think it will become important, but I think it will come more slowly than voice. I think it's that's so interesting of like, you know, we always talk about time travel, how, you know, is this possible and all the physics around it. But the truth is 100 percent 
we are going to be able to create our history in, especially in the short term of this, the, the, the minimum viable product of this is audio. I mean, obviously, you know, we're a podcast company, so like clearly we're bullish on, on audio. But what do you think about if with the rise of voice, the rise of audio content and this idea, you know, we view, we view podcasting, we view audio content as augmented reality because it's in your brain as you walk around and you can experience the world, well, you know, listening to this thing anywhere in the world, obviously, you know, AirPods and all these sort of things. So it can now come with you everywhere. What do you see as like the ways that experiences can change, the way that, you know, marketers can tell these stories differently on demand, on location, you know, wherever it is in, in whatever way that that person kind of wants to, wants to consume it? Well, I think you, you already get a little hint of what's to come in audiobooks. Right. Uh, my wife is a painter and a gardener, and so she loves listening to books all day. Right? Mm-hmm. And if you look, and there's, it's not an accident that Amazon bought Audible. Yep. Okay. Because they see the potential of that as enormous. Before too long, uh, we will all be wearing earpieces just like we carry a smartphone in our pocket and so on. And that earpiece will be whispering into our ear all the time. We'll be getting information. Our digital assistant will be uh, whispering in our ear. We may be carrying devices to help us recognize other people that say, oh yeah, uh, you've forgotten who that is, but here's who it is. And, you know, uh, it'll be providing us reminders and notifications, etc. As I'm walking down the street, oh, you know, you may not have remembered that you were going to pick up some half and half on your way home. You've just passed the store. Would you like to get it? And so on. So it will be essentially a, a digital assistant in our ear using voice. I, you know, I think if you think back to it, it really began with the Walkman, yeah. right? right? The idea that you could take sound with you anywhere. First, it was just music. Then it became books. And then it was our earphone for communication and our, our smartphones and so on. And I think basically the, the, the idea of a very, very high quality earpiece as just kind of normal wear will become ubiquitous. And so everything from audio content, e.g. podcasts and all, to kind of support from your digital assistant will all come through that kind of very sophisticated earpiece. You've talked about in the past this idea of unknown unknowns. What is that and how can how can we kind of look at this idea of like, what, what, what do we what do we not know? Yeah, look, th- th- this is something that is, is not a, a new idea. It's been around for quite a long time. I, I worked at NASA and I worked on redesigning the capsule after the fire that killed the three astronauts on Apollo 1. In NASA, we spent a lot of time thinking about the unknown unknowns because they were the things that could kill you. Literally. And they did in this case. So we were always searching for, in that case, it was technical, right? Most cases, it's not technical unknowns. It's things going on in the world around us that we are not seeing and that might get us in one way or another, might provide opportunities on the one hand, or might be challenging in some way on the other. So the question is, can you actually see them? And the answer is almost always the answer is yes. But here's what it takes. Uh, It takes, first of all, a really open mind. And a willingness to ask hard and awkward questions in every context. So let me give you a concrete example. Uh, When I was at Shell, we were uh, thinking about the future of natural gas in Europe. And uh, the question was, should we build a big new uh, gas platform offshore Norway? Uh, It was going to cost $9 billion. So not trivial. The problem was that the competitor was, uh, this was during the height of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. It was Soviet gas. And so the Reagan administration wanted us to go ahead and basically make sure we built it to keep the Europeans from using Russian gas. Well, 
the fundamental question was, was there a scenario for the end of the Cold War? Mm-hmm. Is there some kind of, you know, because right now this was the height of the evil empire, as as Reagan called it, uh, and said, you know, tear down your wall, Mr. Gorbachev, and so on. Well, so the idea of the end of the Soviet Union just seemed quite implausible. So the question was, were there any unknown unknowns out there that might actually lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union? And it turned out that when you did your homework, found out that the energy consumption of the Soviet Union was not enough to meet their economic numbers. So we recalibrated their economic numbers and we found out they were in the middle of an economic collapse. When they were saying to the world that they were growing, we figured out, oh no, they're collapsing. And they're about to go through a fundamental revolution. And you could either break down or you could clamp down. And it turned out to be breakdown. And we identified the indicators that would tell us which one and we act. We saw it happen. And we, we, 1984, we figured out the Soviet Union would be gone within a decade. The Berlin Wall would fall by 1990. And we would be looking for oil in Russia because there would be no USSR. And the unknown unknown was digging in hard enough to find were there things in that system that we were not seeing that could actually lead to the kind of change we imagined. So it takes imagination on the one hand, because uh, it's easy to imagine lots of possibilities. Yeah. That's not the problem. The problem is which of those is actually plausible and might get you. And the once, But the first task is imagination. The second task is rigorous research that supports that imagination to identify where might that really come from. Look, in technology, we see it all the time. And uh, what we're seeing with Alexa and Siri and Google Home are perfect examples. The roots of that technology Technology have been around for quite a long yeah. time, but not very good. Not very good. And so the question was, was there a technological change coming that could actually lead you to that direction? And the answer was that if you looked at some of the research that DARPA was doing for fighter pilots yep. and heads up displays and control of yep. fighter pilots, you would have actually seen the contract for Siri. That's what Siri was developed for That's by crazy. SRI. But you had to start asking yourself that question. Was there an unknown unknown out there? Because you were actually interested in that possibility. So you have to imagine first, and then you have to do the rigorous research to support that imagination. Because if it's implausible, then there's no point in it. You know, it's funny you say that. I was talking to, uh, in our in our Future Cities podcast, um, Tino Roberts at Slack, who who is their facilities manager of all their facilities. And he was saying that the swipe cards that people have are like, essentially the least secure thing because it can get stolen. The most secure thing is retina scans. Right. But he's like, but nobody wants to do retina scans because it feels weird. Right. So it's like, it has to, like technology's already been there. It's way safer. It's proven and it it would allow us to be safer. But we haven't caught up kind of that marketing element of like, we haven't told the story of like how this keeps you safe. Right. I'm just curious, like, how do you look at, like, with your writing and look at fu- futuristic things? Like, like what frameworks do you use to to look at what's coming in the future? Well, look, we use a very straightforward framework. It's very simple. I call it steep. Social, technological, economic, environmental, and political. Basically, in any situation I try to look at, and this is also in the same spirit as the unknown unknowns, is to look at each of those categories. Are there important social forces at work here? Are there important technological forces at work here? Are there important economic economic forces, important ecological forces, and important political forces. And it is the interplay of all five of those categories that actually creates the future. If you've you know, systematically gone through each one, you're unlikely to miss something important. And that's part, that's what really the objective is. What you don't want to do is miss the really important thing because you didn't think about the social dimension of it, or you didn't think about the political dimension of it, and so on. So you really want to think through each of those categories. 
That's great. I mean, I love that. Thanks so much for for hanging out today. It's been a blast. We could have done this for another couple hours. So, My pleasure. Uh, it's, it's been really fantastic. And uh, we'll link up all the stuff in the show notes that, uh, that we talked about today. Great. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.